and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalgo Rohaj, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends. Giselle Donnelly, I'm also at the American Enterprise Institute, and... Yuria Goza with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown, and George Washington University. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have emerged along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Euro Epstein, um, the Executive Director of Renew Democracy Initiative. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. I have to say that we've been having some technical difficulties, so if you can't hear Yulia properly, we're going to blame it on the poor quality of Romanian internet. But the fact of the matter is that she is joining us from Northwest Washington, D.C. Uh, so That's where the Romanian internet is. How most powerful. Uh, I want to turn to Yuria. I mean, I was I was following very closely and with great interest the emergence of Renew Democracy Initiative around 2018. I was having conversations with some people involved in the, in wow. the project. Uh, my sense at that time was that this was an organization that was dedicated primarily to the defense and preservation of American democracy and, and the strengthening of our domestic institutions. Your recent work on Ukraine suggests that in your own mind, in the mind of your founder, Gary Kasparov, the future of Ukraine and the quality of, of American democracy are in some ways linked. So can you can you maybe kick us off by explaining to us your thinking on, on why those two matters uh, in some sense go hand in hand? Absolutely. Uh, so thank you so much for um, inviting me to join. And I you know, have to say that this is a little bit of a, of a unique podcast appearance for me uh, because I used to intern for one of you. Um, I interned for Giselle a little over a decade ago. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, this is very much a full circle moment. It's not polite to suggest my age. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or mine. But, um, but yeah, no, so to your point, yes, we believe that the two are fundamentally related. So RDI was founded in the wake of the 2016 election. It was brought, it brought together a group of, you know, Gary would kind of semi-jokingly call them refugees from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, so Gary, Brett Stevens, Mark Laswell, Max Boot, and so forth. And, and they were joined by a number of other folks representing the center left. So Senators uh, Heidi Heitkamp, uh, Bob Carey, uh, later Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vindman. So it was very much this cross-partisan coalition of people focused on trying to pull American democracy back from the brink. Now, within that, we were always big believers in the role of American leadership and the importance of American democracy to freedom around the world and vice versa the importance of freedom around the world to democracy in the U.S. And we've seen the impact that dictators can have on American democracy, whether that's through direct attacks, right, on our elections, on our systems, or indirectly, right, through essentially incentivizing censorship in the U.S. I mean, we used to think that capitalism, that our capitalist system would export democracy. And what we found instead is that it's frequently importing authoritarianism, right? Where NBA, right, one, you know, an organization that claims to be such a, you know, socially just group is openly kowtowing to China. 
And the fact is that we cannot bear, you know, bury our heads in the sand, as I'm sure you all agree. We can't bury our heads in the sand and ignore threats to democracy abroad. So bringing us to Ukraine, we believe that Ukraine represents the front line of freedom today. Putin's attack on Ukraine isn't just an attack on Ukraine. It's an attack on the free world. If Ukraine wins, that's a victory for the free world. And we can finally reverse the trend that's existed over the last 20 years of receding democracy. And if Ukraine loses, then we don't know what's next. Moldova, Lithuania. And of course, if, you know, Putin attacks Lithuania, that is an Article 5 question. Lithuania is a member of NATO. You know, that's why we believe that we cannot simply focus on American democracy without simultaneously and equally working on uh, democracy around the world. Uriel, I have kind of a off the perhaps off the wall question, but because your organization has been bipartisan or nonpartisan, and as you say, has attracted centrist Democrats as well as uh, centrist uh, Republicans. You know, one of the dogs that hasn't barked too loudly in our domestic politics during the Ukraine war has been that of the leftmost parts of the Democratic Party. I mean, we've talked a lot on this podcast and many people have talked a lot about uh, how um, the Trumpist right has man love for Vladimir Putin and Viktor Orban and uh, strongmen more generally. But throughout my lifetime, many of the biggest uh, opponents, particularly when it comes to military intervention overseas and skeptics almost of democracy pr- uh, promotion, uh, have come from the American left. I, I wonder if you have any insights or, or through your organization have insights, sort of how solid democratic support is uh, for the Ukrainian cause. Yeah. No, I think that's, 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 that's a really good question. Um, and I want to make a distinction between kind of skepticism of military intervention writ large mm-hmm. and, you know, what I would call latent support for foreign dictatorships and hatred of America. Right. I mean, I think those two are, are, are separate things. I mean, you can be right. skeptical of, yeah. of leveraging American military power abroad while still believing firmly in sort of a liberal world order in the, again, in the classical sense of the word. word. I would distinguish the left between two pieces. So you have the, the what I would call the dictator loving part of the left, right? The George Galloways, the Glenn Greenwalds, the Tulsi Gabbards. I mean, these are people who are openly aligned with dictators. They want Putin to succeed. You know, whatever they say, right? They may try to caveat that in some way, but they're clearly the actions that they recommend would lead to the success of these dictators. Therefore, it's fair to say that they want those dictators to succeed. Now, luckily, I think that the, that part of the left still represents a fairly small percentage of the American Democratic Party writ large, right? They don't represent, I, I don't think, uh, a particularly significant piece. Now, what I'm most afraid of on the left is actually a different train of thought. What I'm most afraid of on the left is this fear, what I would call an overblown fear of escalation, the, you know, let's not piss Putin off too much camp. And that camp does, you know, carry a, you know, I think a fair bit of power, right? I mean, to be, you know, very transparent, I I believe that, you know, you have folks like Jake Sullivan and, and John Kerry, who I think for, you know, whether for whatever reason, for good reason or for bad, you know, they, they defer too much to the Russian dictator and they try to, self-deter 
too much. And, you know, we've heard this at every stage of the conflict. When we were giving Ukrainians stingers and javelins, the idea was, oh, well, we can't give them anything heavier than that, because if we do, that is escalation. And, and you know, that, that might lead Putin to do God knows what. Then, of course, we started giving them additional heavier weaponry. But we said, well, we can't give them anything that could be qualified as quote unquote offensive. We can only give them defensive weapons because again, if we give them something offensive, then, you know, Putin might do X, Y, or Z. And now, of course, you know, that we've also, we've now crossed that line. And each time this has happened, of course, Putin hasn't gone nuclear. He hasn't escalated beyond because I don't think he can. And I think Putin wants to live. So what I'm afraid of on the right is a love of dictators, right? Like you had 57 Republicans vote against uh, aid to Ukraine. And I think that those numbers will only increase, sadly, as much as we're trying to counter that. Um, on the left, what I'm afraid of is less sort of that s- sympathy with dictators and much more uh, what I would call, I guess, a fear, an overblown fear of the dictators and insufficient confidence in the power of our own hand. That's a, a super point, I think. But it's curious where that comes from exactly, and why isn't it a rebuttable proposition? Uh, I mean, as you as you quite rightly pointed out, that fear has been there from the start, and now it's being transmogrified into a fear of a quote unquote catastrophic uh, Ukrainian victory. So <laughs> at some point, you think uh, no, it's an internal fear, not really a hardcore judgment about the balance of power, but the origins of it are, you know, sort of hard to understand. On the left, especially there, there's always been this trend of skepticism with regards to American power, you know, and if we're going to be direct, you know, and I don't know how trendy it is to say this these days, but the United States remains by at least an order of magnitude, the most powerful nation in the world. And the free world a safe a- space for you. Uriel. <laughs> I mean, look, it, you know, we used to joke that Russia or not joke. I mean, this wasn't a joke that, you know, people, I think, used to believe that Russia had the second most powerful military in the world. And the joke is that now we, we understand that Russia may well still have the second most powerful military. Just the geographic scope has changed. It's no longer in the world. It's, it's now in Ukraine. Ukraine. <laughs> Um, and Ukraine, when all is said and done, is going to be left with the second most powerful military in NATO. Um, you know, so, so I, I think you're right. I, I think the argument is directly rebuttable. I don't, I gotta be honest, I don't know why it has so much sway or as much sway as it does within kind of the foreign policy elite of this administration. I think every time we have thought that Putin might lose sense on of reality and might over you know might might quote unquote overreact might do whatever every time that there's been that sense it's been wrong right i mean putin claimed that he started this war because of nato on his borders and as a direct result of his of this war we've now doubled the nato border on the verge of doubling the nato border with russia by having finland and sweden join and yet of course putin's immediate reaction was oh well we're not concerned about that Right. When 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 that came out, that was his immediate reaction because he knew that there was nothing he could do about it. So I think that this is actually a psychological question and something that another board member of RDIs speaks to a fair bit. Annie Duke, who is a former world poker champion and a cognitive cognitive decision scientist, 
I mean, she's absolutely brilliant. And she talks about this. She talks about kind of the dangers of, of psychological inertia, of inertia and decision making, of being afraid to make a decision and have and actually preferring a decision to be forced upon you. And I think it's our job to not allow these kinds of decisions to be forced upon us. I think it's our job to do the hard work and say, look, we need to take these decisions, however unpopular they may might be, and not allow you know Russia to force this decision on us by it say attacking a NATO country. Um, I think I think it's up to us. And and again, for the record, I do not think Russia will attack a NATO country. I do not think Russia will escalate further. I think it's our job right now to do whatever it is we can to support Ukraine and make sure that we have, as Giselle pointed, as Giselle said, that quote unquote catastrophic Ukrainian victory. So, Yuria, um, I think with all these questions, we have established that um, you are a supporter of Ukraine and RDI, of course, for all the right moral and strategic reasons, and you're sort of preaching to the choir. But <laughs> now, beyond jokes, you have managed to, to put, to define what brings us together on fighting for democracy, as well as on who the opponents of that are and the, the dangers of that, um, you've put that in very eloquent terms. Um, but I also want to ask you about what you're actually doing um, with um, Renew Democracy Initiative on Ukraine specifically. I know you focused on that. I know you were recently um, in Berlin. Now she's also going to get her back up <laughs> when I say Germany. <laughs> And uh, and uh, and I know you're working with um, Jeff Gedman, who was with us um, when we were in Ukraine um, and um, and is doing some work on that, too. So can you talk us through um, what how you see the importance of Ukraine in your work and what you're um, trying to drive as we're looking into the months ahead? We know that we have a hard fall and winter for Europe and, and here in the United States, and particularly for Ukraine. And we're trying to figure out what the best ways are in which to, to support Ukraine um, and what we should be expecting. So tell us your perspective through your work on that. RDI believes in combating authoritarianism, combating the rise of authoritarianism within the free world and combating authoritarianism wherever it exists outside of the free world as well. And the single best way we believe that we can do that right now is by supporting Ukraine in its in 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 its self-defense against Russia. And, you know, people will bring up and I've heard some of these arguments. Well, look, this is ultimately a distraction and the real fight is yet to come with China. And while I, I am certainly concerned about China, I think the single best way to counter China and to say defend Taiwan is to make sure that Ukraine wins. Right. China is looking at this very carefully and they. Are, are, are taking notes. And I think we've already started to see the beginning of dissent within the authoritarian coalition when Xi Jinping expressed doubts about Russia's botched invasion. And I think, so I think he's watching very carefully. And if Ukraine is able to win and if Ukraine is able to maintain its territory and, you know, best case, you know, best case scenario, take back everything that has been taken from them since 2014, you know, worst case scenario at the very least, go back to February 23rd. Um, I think Xi Jinping is going to think twice about attacking Taiwan. So we're going to end up with a much safer international system than we would otherwise. And furthermore, what people like Gary Kasparov will tell you is that in order for Russian civil society to win and in order for Russia to actually become a more uh, free state, they need to be defeated militarily. The first step in the defeat of a dictator 
is a military defeat, right? Everything else will come later, but there needs to be the shock of a military defeat before things can change. So it's actually in the interest of the Russian people for Russia to lose this war and then for Russia ultimately to join the free world. What RDI is doing in this. So first we are working, we are doing some humanitarian work, right? So we are a small, agile startup, which means that we can fund and support and collaborate on some of the initiatives in Ukraine that some of the bigger players are not in a position to do for whatever reason, whether bureaucracy, safety, and so forth. And so as a result, we're able to, you know, partner on work that's happening, you know, very, very, very close to the front lines. Right. And we, of course, partner exclusively with civil society, exclusively with nonprofits. Um, but there is some of that work that's being done. Now, the bigger project right now is the work that, that we're collaborating on with Jeff, uh, that we're collaborating on actually with a host of other institutions to stiffen the spines of people in the United States and in Germany in order to maintain support for Ukraine and more broadly to maintain our unity in the face of what we believe to be a global battle between tyranny and democracy, which I should note is something that Biden himself said. Biden, and when he was speaking to the UN General Assembly, I think a little over either a year ago or two years ago, actually said exactly those words, that there is a this global war and we have to fight this war. And of course, the best way for us to make progress uh, in that global conflict is by supporting Ukraine. So in our efforts, what we're trying to do is we're trying to articulate and then convey a very clear vision as to what victory is, right? The job, I think, of, of, of uh, leadership within the free world is to very clearly understand and very clearly communicate what our goals are. And I don't think we've done that. I don't think the United States has been very clear as to what our goals are. I don't think Germany and, and the rest of the EU have been very clear about what their strategic goals are. And if there is that kind of strategic ambiguity, it opens the door to doubt and it opens the door to disunity and it opens the door, I think, to people kind of pulling back. And, you know, when things get hard in November and December, you know, when things get cold in Europe, I'm very concerned about you know, whether that will, will actually continue to be there, right? Whether whether those nations will continue to be united. It's actually, again, it's a psychological thing. We need to pre-commit, right? I mean, it's the same thing where if like, I'm trying to quit smoking, I need to set that intention very clearly up front because I'm going to have a moment of weakness, you know, a week from now, and I'm going to try to bum a cigarette from someone. And I think it's the same thing on a geopolitical level. We need to pre-commit to what our strategic objectives are. We need to be very clear about them. And then all the kind of nations in the coalition of the willing need to sign on to that. And then we we will have to deal with the costs of trying to achieve those strategic objectives. So that's what our DI is trying to do here. That's what we're trying to do in Europe. And then, of course, will be the work of actually communicating and convincing people that these are the right objectives and that we have to pay the costs of those objectives because the long-term costs of not achieving them are going to be a lot higher than the short-term costs of actually trying to get them done. If I can follow up on that, basically the question is, so how is that going in your understanding? You mentioned that you're concerned, um, but 
Can you tell us a little bit about the main firms when we're looking particularly at Europe? You, you bridged um, kind of transatlantically with, uh, with some of the concerns, but just to um, kind of um, uh, focus on that, we've been talking around it in this podcast um, for months now, um, but I'll give you the example. I think it was last Friday, I was on an, uh, a Zoom panel um, on Black Sea security, it was opened up um, by the Prime Minister, so kind of state supported. And I noticed that in all the questions that the panel had, um, they were all revolving, whether it was from Romania or from Germany, they were all revolving around, but it's going to be so expensive, all around costs. And my um, Polish colleague had a very good um, response to that. He said, we have to embrace the cost. And so I want to build into that and kind of frame the question in the following way. Are we at a point, particularly in Europe, where we understand that this war and whatever it costs us, um, we could have prevented um, by moving differently in 2008 and beyond? And if we have internalized that question and answer to that, which I'm not sure we have, but I'm curious to hear you, then can we assess costs in the future with regards to Ukraine in terms of, yes, it's going to be a costly winter, but if we don't do this, then it's going to cost us a lot more in many years to come in human lives and in the very pragmatic way of US dollars or euros. I, I, I think that's a that's a terrific question. And I, and I think that the underlying thing that we need to convince people, and this is the sort of the necessary but not sufficient clause for, for everything to come, is that Ukraine can win. And in other words, the arguments that we hear that, well, giving weapons to Ukraine only prolongs the conflict, the assumption for of those who make those arguments as well, Ukraine can't win this war anyway. So all we're doing is we're making the war longer. And then the end will still have to be a negotiated solution. And, and, and there's going to be no solution on the battlefield because Ukraine isn't going to be able to push Russia out. So the number one goal for us, and this is both in Europe and in the US, is that Ukraine can win. Number one period. And, and for th- those reasons, we've launched a bi-weekly uh, video series featuring primarily General Ben Hodges. We just had Ben on last week. Oh, terrific. Well, Ben, Ben's become a, a good friend and ally of ours. And, you know, I know he's been incredibly active speaking everywhere. And so, yeah, so we've launched this video series with him, um, which has been remarkably successful on YouTube, actually. So I encourage everyone, if, if you haven't already, check out the Renew Democracy Initiative on YouTube and you'll see some of Ben's videos. And what you'll also see is what we're starting to have these conversations with a host of other generals. I was just speaking with General Petraeus last week, uh, getting his perspective, uh, not just on updates from the battlefield, but on what the path forward is. So that's the first step is Ukraine can win. We can actually make this happen. And, and, and of course, their flash offensive in the Northeast has been absolutely brilliant, not only in the sense that it achieved mil- its military objectives, but also in the sense that I think it calmed down some of those voices in the West that were concerned that there was no way for Ukraine to win. Number two is the cost. That's absolutely right. I think you've you've highlighted exactly the key problem, and that's what we keep hearing from people. It's what we hear from economic populists in the U.S., from left and right. Why should we be investing this money in Ukraine when we could be fixing the roads in, you know, wherever, you know, name the, the place? 
Um, and, you know, the fact is that that's always going to be a challenge, right? Foreign policy has always been a struggle, I think, to explain because it does cost. And, you know, there's always an opportunity cost to spending money abroad when we could be spending it at home. But ultimately, number one, I think we need to have the courage and strength of our convictions. And I do think that the general public in the U.S. understands that. We've seen over 70 percent support. So I think that I'm not I'm not too worried about on that front. I don't think they've made too much headway in the U.S. In Europe, I'm more worried when I was in Germany. I did hear from folks, and by the way, this wasn't just on the left and the, and, and, and the SPD, this was also in the Christian Democrats, the CDU, where we heard people say, look, this is really expensive for us. You know, is this ultimately worth the cost? And, and what was so interesting was when I pressed those people and I said, look, let's play out a scenario, right? Let's say you agree with Putin and, and, and you come to, you sign an agreement. Number one, what's keeping Putin from breaking that agreement three years from now? Um, you know, and, and what's keeping that this sort of any kind of short term solution to being anything other than kicking the can down the road. And I have to be honest that they were they struggled to answer that question. So I think actually, if we were to lay out in very clear terms what the counterfactual is, what the alternative is that, you know, a short term peace is just that it's short term. And meanwhile, the cost will increase over time. I, I actually think that can be a compelling argument. And then, you know, there are other arguments which I think are true, but I think are less compelling, certainly to the Germans, which are that, you know, to some extent, the Germans did this to themselves, right? I mean, 20 years ago, uh, they didn't have, or, or 10 years ago, I mean, they did not have to go down the road of Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, right? They could have maintained their nuclear power. They could have uh, looked to find alter- sources of energy elsewhere, but instead they decided um, along the lines of Ostpolitik uh, that, that they could separate business from politics with Russia and that they can engage in energy politics with them without having to worry about political repercussions. And well, clearly, I think we found that to have been wrong. And I will say one thing that gives me hope is that Germans know that. I have spoken with a number of very senior level politicians over there who have pretty much all without exception told me that they were wrong about Nord Stream 2. They were wrong, including those that voted for it, including those that supported it, that pushed for it. They said we were wrong and they recognized that. Now we need to put, of course, action behind those words. And, you know, there's a number of things that I've heard from them. So one of the most common things I've heard from our friends in the German political establishment is that they want they're asking for more pressure from the U.S., it's a weird thing to say, right? But they actually want the U.S. to be to to offer more leadership uh, because they believe that if the you know if the Biden administration were to pressure uh, Schultz more, then they would actually have no choice but to start increasing their levels of actual aid, military aid to Ukraine. And and you know for all this talk about Germany not having this equipment, I think it's very clear that they do have some equipment. Right. I mean, again, I don't know about the leopard tanks and whatnot, but certainly they have enough martyr vehicles um, and other such, uh, you know, infantry troop transports and so forth that could make a difference as Ukraine starts to move its offensive forward. So anyway, I think, number one, we need to tell them that Ukraine can win. Number two, we need to say that the cost that there's going to be cost no matter what. The question is, do we pay a lower cost right now or do we pay a higher cost five, eight years from now? That's up to us. And then number three, we do make the moral case. We do make the ethical case that, look, look at what's happening. This is a question of what's right and what's wrong. And this conflict is pretty black and white. 
you know, the, for once we actually have a conflict on the world stage that's not a shade of gray. It's, I think, pretty direct and pretty clear. And then last but not least, number four, it's about the world order, right? Do we want the world order to be more safe or more insecure, more stable or more chaotic over the course of the next few decades? I think that those are all, all great arguments. And, and your, your point about Germany is, is well taken. I have, over recent days, I think become less concerned about Germany as the weakest link in Europe going forward, specifically when it comes to energy policy. I think that sort of common cliche about, you know, the, the consensus-driven culture in Germany, which is difficult to change, but once it shifts, the sort of new equilibrium tends to stick, I think, is, is basically correct. I'm more concerned now about, uh, you know, everybody else. <laughs> you know, yeah, you I thought you were going to say Italy has moved to the bottom of the, uh, well, there, there's, the there's, swimming there's, pool. But, but paradoxically, I think, I think we sometimes... In, in I think we can give up on Italy for the time being. <laughs> we, we have this sort of overly romantic idea, I think, of, of sort of Eastern European countries as, as, as presenting this united front willing to confront Russia and, and always pushing Western Europe to do more. Uh, and I think there are some real, real fragilities there, um, especially as we go into winter months and, and those energy bills are going to hit, you know, Romanian, Slovak, uh, Bulgarian households much more than they're going to hit, say, German households. If you have, you know, an EU that gets into a recession, you have countries that need to be bailed out within the Eurozone, I think that's going to like reopen the whole can of worms that, that the EU hasn't been terribly good at dealing with. And it can bring, you know, this unity into what has been a sort of reasonably sort of unified, unified European front. So, so I think the temptation for politicians to say, well, I just want this Ukraine thing to go away because it's just making everything worse. I think will be, will be, will be much greater. And, and, and I think that's why we, a need to seize this opportunity presented by these recent Ukrainian successes. And, and, and that's why we sort of need the United States as some kind of, and I'm going to, I guess, misuse the metaphor of offshore balancer of sort of putting pressure on U- Europeans to, to, you know, stand firm and, and do the, do the right thing. So, you know, I don't know how concerned I would be about Eastern European countries. I mean, I was in Poland and Lithuania, and obviously, I mean, they're two of the leaders of of the Eastern European. I'm not concerned about those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. You're you're talking about Romania and so forth. I I, I got to be honest. I don't have that much visibility there, um, so I don't think I can comment on that. But let me let me lay out a scenario that I think is the scariest to me. Six weeks from now, four weeks from now, Putin comes to Macron and Schultz, and he says, "Guys, that's enough." You know, enough with the killing, enough with the bloodshed. Look, let me take what I got, right? Maybe, and look, I'll give you good goodwill gesture. Here's 10% of what I've taken. You can have it back. And you know what, Zelensky, that guy's a hothead. All right, like, you know, let's, you know, put a leash on him. Let's, you know, pull him back. Let's come, let's come to some sort of agreement. Now, Gary and I spoke about this and, you know, Gary weirdly is more optimistic than I am, which is a very unusual state of affairs, I can tell you. He doesn't think that at this point Macron or Schultz would go for any kind of agreement with Putin. I'm less confident. You know, I keep seeing them, you know, even Mac- even today, Macron still kind of refuses to unequivocally go condemn and go after Putin in the way that Biden has. And I'm a little concerned, you know, if a few if if when things get colder and things get more expensive, Putin comes to them and says, look, here's my offer. 
um, let's make let's make something happen. I'd be I'd be worried about the unity of the West, especially in, you know, I've heard a few people say, well, look, you can always keep sanctions on Russia. Well, first of all, I don't know that Putin would agree to keep to, to have sanctions be kept on him. But two, sanctions aren't free for us either. Sanctions are expensive. And if we freeze this conflict, I'm really concerned about people's willingness to keep paying for those sanctions as years go by. So for me, the worst case scenario is actually a frozen conflict, even if sanctions stay on Russia. It's because I think within a couple of years, we're going to lose the willpower to keep those sanctions. And then we're going to go back, not even to status quo ante. I mean, it's going to be even worse than that, right? We're going to go back, go, go to a situation where Ukraine has been partitioned and Putin is able to, to, uh, you know, regroup his forces and potentially go back on the offensive five, six, seven, eight years from now. So that's my worst case scenario. I'm attracted to your trying to quit smoking uh, metaphor for this. It, it, it's pretty clear that we have to buy quite a few nicotine patches for our European allies and maybe a couple of dozen for ourselves as well. Um, but to sort of bring the discussion full circle, uh, you know, it strikes me that there's a strong connection between the uh, uncertainty that uh, European allies may have and the democratic backsliding that's been going on for the last 10 or 15 years or so. So, you know, there, there's kind of uh, a moral, intellectual, and actually strategic connection between oh. the resiliency and the power of democratic norms and the sort of martial qualities, just to use a shorthand term, that various countries events or or don't events, which suggests to me that uh, your that your work will continue to be critical um, well beyond whatever outcome in Ukraine we have. If we get through this, we will have survived by the skin of our democratic teeth. Huh. And we don't, we shouldn't want to return to normal. Uh, if normal is 2008 or 2014, we should aspire to, to something better where true liberal democratic norms are, you know, implanted, uh, entwined, uh, taken to heart in the United States, but also, uh, in Western Europe, the, the, the sort of homeland of, Western democracies uh, will still need some, you know, uh, that will still need that nicotine patch. Yeah, let me let me add one more note, you know, sort of to sum up kind of from our end. You know, your very first question was, what's the connection between Ukraine and democracy in America? I want to make one more note on that, which I think is incredibly important, which is that ultimately people are emotional creatures and we are also storytellers and we want to tell relatively coherent stories so we've seen in the u.s cpac invite victor orban to come and talk to them we've seen how they salivate the conservative political action committee for just trying to keep every <laughs> up to speed with us. <laughs> Thanks, Giselle. Um, yes, yes, yes. The Conservative Political Action Committee, which, by the way, I should note that one of their founders is on my board, Mickey Edwards. Um, you know, and Mickey, of course, would not be welcome through their doors today. Right. 
you know, he, and he's a four-term, no, well, sorry, eight-term congressman. They, they fangirl over Viktor Orban, the, the, at this point, actually, according to the EU, borderline dictator of Hungary. And they, and, and increasingly there are those who on that side who fangirl over Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, Tucker Carlson is one of the Kremlin's, I think, single greatest propagandists. Um, meanwhile, those who tend to understand what's at stake in the Ukrainian conflict also, generally speaking, understand what's at stake within American democracy. They understand the dangers of January 6th. They understand the dangers posed to rule of law uh, and so forth by, you know, what I would call radical extremist forces. And, and, and I should note, by the way, that, that they also understand the risks posed by the very far left, um, you know, around censorship and things like that. And so, in other words, there's this fairly significant overlap between people who agree with us on the importance of defending Ukraine and people who agree with us about the importance of defending American democracy. And I strongly believe that if we're able to mobilize them around the Ukrainian issue, then God willing, once this war is won, once Ukraine wins this war, then this is a group of people that we can mobilize and we can empower to help defend American democracy domestically. In other words, our key hypothesis here is that people take inspiration from fighters in Ukraine who are risking their lives to defend their freedom. And that kind of inspiration is actually powerful domestically within the U.S. And most importantly, it cuts across partisan lines. So that's what we're hoping to achieve in the U.S. That's a great uplifting note on which to bring these proceedings to a to a close. Thank you so much, Uriel. This was this 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 has been a great, great conversation from Dalva Rohaj and Giselle Donnelly and Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. You can sign up for our fortnightly newsletter, which is now live. It will give you updates of recent episodes, Q&A with your hosts, that is the three of us, and also our most recent op-eds, articles, blog posts on security challenges facing the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.